Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, that red-hot inflation is proving to be the biggest story in markets this year. And obviously, energy prices are a huge part of it. So we're going to tap the brain of an expert who the New York Times calls, quote, America's most influential energy pundit. But Vildana, first, I need to talk to Bloomberg's most influential markets pundit, you. I bet you're, I'm very jealous you're going to London next week. What is up with that? Am I more influential than you are? I, 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 I've thrown you a bone there. You know, you can. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. I am. I am going to London and I'm so excited to see all of the London colleagues I've never even met in, in real life. And I've never been to the Bloomberg office there. So, um, but, but then at the end of my trip, I'm going to a wedding in a castle. Oh, that's cool. What what's yeah. the name of the castle? I have no idea. I think actually people live in it, so <laughs> it might not have a name. <laughs> oh, it's not where it's not where the queen's living, is it? <laughs> no, I wish. Is this, a, ro- is this a royal wedding you're going to? <laughs> I think it's a royal adjacent wedding. Yes. Do you have one of those? You need one of those hats, a fascinator. Oh, it's called a fascinator. Yeah, I I I wish I could pull that off, but yeah, I, maybe I need to go shopping for a fascinator. You do. But, and you also yeah. need to go to the Mithrium in the basement of the Bloomberg building. 
the temple to the Roman god Mithros that oh, they right. uncovered. Yes, yes, I heard about that. Yeah. Then I'm, you'll be in a castle and a Roman temple. You'll you'll yeah, see all cool is that? that London has to offer. Yeah, how cool is that? <laughs> uh, but I want to bring in our, our guest this week. Uh, you just introduced him, and, and I want to welcome Daniel Jurgen. He's the vice chairman at S&P Global, and he's also the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to join you both. Thank you. I have to say, your team sent over a copy of your book before the podcast, and I Highly, highly recommended. I love stuff like this. It's all about geopolitics and the role that energy is playing, which obviously has been a, a huge topic this year. So maybe just to start out very broadly speaking, you start the book book actually saying there's this growing coldness between the U.S. and China and Russia. And I want to ask you about energy's role in this growing coldness. Well, energy is a very important part of it. Obviously, uh, I focused in the book on and really how this war began in Ukraine by explaining uh, the focus and the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine uh, and how that ties into natural gas in Europe. And similarly, of course, uh, China, the big geopolitical story of the 21st century is the relationship between the U.S. and China. And that is getting colder and more difficult, it seems, almost day by day. You know, Daniel, I read your book too. I agree. Very excellent book. Uh, and I know you have several others. So we've got a lot of reading to do, Vildana, to, to catch up with these. But Well, I think Vildana has a long plane ride. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get her started. I'm, I'm loading them all on my Kindle. All right. Yeah. Good, good idea. <laughs> Until you fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I thought occurred to me, Daniel, as I was reading it is um, what's accompanied this sort of, you know, New Cold War, if you will, or, or however you want to describe it, is America's growth of its own domestic energy industry, the, the shale patch and the fracking and whatnot. And I wonder, you know, it, it almost seems like going from sort of being renowned as the biggest consumer of energy in the world to now a major producer almost escalates the geopolitical tensions, I, I feel like. And does it almost make sort of America's influence... Um, if not weaker, uh, different in, in this environment, since we are such a big producer now. Yeah, I think it, well, I think that's, that's absolutely right. You know, it's, I deal with a lot of things from, you know, Ukraine to climate in the book, but I start with shale and because shales I really had a much bigger impact on geopolitics than people recognize. I mean, the story I tell in the book is uh, when I was uh, in St. Petersburg at a conference where Putin was speaking and uh, I, 3,000 people there. And I was told to ask the first question. I started to ask a question. I mentioned the word shale and he started shouting at me saying, shale's barbaric. He knew that U.S. shale was a threat to him in two ways. One, because it meant uh, that U.S. natural gas would compete with his natural gas in Europe. And that's what we're seeing today. And secondly, uh, Mike, it's your point, because this would really augment America's position in the world and give it a kind of flexibility it didn't have when it was importing 60% of its oil. Yeah. I'd love to know who decided that you get to ask Putin the first question. That's a, Talk about drawing the short, short straw there. That's, uh, <laughs> that's not a position I'd want to be in. Well, uh, it was, um, I will tell you, um, it, it was started off innocuously that I was going to ask him the normal question about uh, uh, diversifying your economy. And I said, shale, and, you know, to be shouted at him, by him in front of 
3,000 people, a really unpleasant experience. <laughs> the other thing, that, now that we're talking about it, I realize the other person on the stage was Chancellor Merkel, who was Chancellor of Germany for 16 years. And you can see the enmity t- between the two. But, you know, Merkel's now being criticized um, for uh, policies like shutting down nuclear that led to Germany being more dependent on Russian gas. And, it, you know, the sort of judgment of history is is shifting a little bit. All right. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about this because I noticed that early on in the book, you had actually mentioned that Merkel said about Nord Stream that it linked Russia and Europe in a safe and resilient partnership. And then later on, as you continue reading, you 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 lay out that she says, uh, you know, actually Putin is living in his own world where, where her judgment maybe was uh, shifting a little bit or changing a little bit. So I wanted to ask you where everybody sort of went wrong or, or where people made mistakes in over the last 10 years or so? Well, I think that's a really um, important question and one I've been thinking about because, you know, now there's a kind of revisionism that we shouldn't, you know, the world shouldn't have traded with Russia, shouldn't have tried to integrate Russia into the world economy, particularly as Putin got more and more authoritarian. But you say, well, what was the alternative to leave it festering there? I mean, it, the best thing was to get it anchored in the world. Um, and, but, you know, Putin, I mean, he's been in power now almost as long as Joseph Stalin. And I think he was, um, you know, becoming more and more authoritarian. And people who have known him over the years said that that COVID changed him. He was isolated for two years. He wasn't meeting Western business people. He wasn't meeting Western government officials and so forth. Very isolated with a small group of people around him, maybe ill, and developed this incredible paranoia. Uh, and this anger that led him to unleash this uh, terrible war. So I don't think there was an alternative to not trying to integrate Russia into the world. But obviously, um, what's happening now is the world, at least the Western world, is slamming the door on Russia. Right. I, you know, it's interesting, Daniel. I feel like this uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine has lasted longer than I th- most people expected. I think. People thought, I think if I can jump in, yeah. Mike, longer than anybody expected. Right. I think most people thought that they would go in and, and take over in a matter of a couple of weeks, if, if if not sooner. Well, well, I mean, just to tell you, I mean, Putin thought it was going to be three or four days. Yeah, right, right. So as it drags on, I'm just trying to wrap my head around, um, you know, luckily the, the spring weather in Europe now is sort of made the, the energy situation a little less acute than it would be otherwise. Obviously. You know, uh, they still need natural gas for electricity um, and, uh, you know, to keep the factories running and the lights on. But as it drags on closer to the fall and winter, I mean, is Europe going to be able to just soldier on without uh, sort of succumbing to Russia uh, and their demands um, when it starts getting colder again? What do they need to do to, to sort of be able to do that? Well, I think that's the question that's really weighing now because. In terms of oil, there's enough oil, crude oil in the world. Uh, you have to move it around, but between strategic stocks, between demand being down in China, you can manage that. When you get into products like diesel, it gets harder. And then, uh, Mike, you're going to the hardest thing was natural gas. And that is exactly as you go into the winter. So the big question now is, can you fill, can they fill storage so that, uh, that they can get through the winter and, by the way, not only stay warm, but keep industry operating. And I think 
you know, we, we can say that Putin made a series of decisions which kind of were rational, that his army was really good, that Ukraine wouldn't uh, uh, re- be able to resist, that the U.S. had just gone through getting out of Afghanistan and was deeply divided, that Europe was so dependent on his energy that they would say, okay, this is terrible, but life goes on. Uh, and none of that happened. But I think he's still calculating, and he said it, that ultimately um, this energy disruption, and we are in a huge energy disruption, a dis- huge disruption of energy markets, would be such a big threat to the European economy that um, that that the coalition that now exists would fall apart. I think that's that's his wager right now. And uh, and the Achilles heel is what you pointed to. What happens is uh, as Europe goes into the fall and winter. Right. So Putin's still sort of counting on that to happen, I imagine, at this point. Yeah. And we've had at least one German uh, very prominent industrialist who said, we sh- you know, this is too dangerous for the European economy. We should negotiate something with Putin. And before we get into more of the intricacies, I actually wanted to ask you to lay out because in your book, you you really presciently lay out what happened between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, you go back centuries, really, but, right. uh, you know, over the last eight to 10 years, how important that's been the war that broke out back when Russia invaded Crimea. Can you just talk about that and, and just lay out for yes. our listeners what happened? Uh- yeah, you, I mean, there's, there's always been this question in the Russian narrative. There wasn't, there is no Ukraine. Putin has said that Ukraine was simply part of Russia, and he published last summer, bizarrely, a five thousand word essay, particularly bizarrely in terms of what's happened now, saying Ukrainians and, and Russians are brothers. He had this mystical Slavic notion, and so uh, he 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 described the breakup of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the twentieth century. And so he never really accepted the breakup of the Soviet Union, particularly Ukraine, because uh, that was part of Russia. And it was like the West, particularly the United States, had taken it away from Russia, taken away from him. And so this relationship was always very acrimonious, uh, really from uh, the 1990s, but particularly when Putin came to power and there was a series of crises over gas. And Ukraine was, you know, not a very, is a pretty corrupt uh, uh, country with a lot of uh, conflict going on in, internally and so forth, and a lot of Russian efforts to kind of dominate the country. And so uh, Putin really, you know, regarded it as part of his mission as he became maybe more and more megalomaniacal uh, that Ukraine had to be brought back into Russia. And he started with Crimea. He's and ever since 2014, there's been a war going on actually, which one doesn't realize. But the Ukrainian army is as good as it is because it's been fighting a war in eastern, southeastern Ukraine. And so, um, the, you know, these tensions were just there, and they remain today. Where uh, he, he says there's, I mean, he said it to people. He said it to George. W. Bush once said Ukraine never existed as a country. Two thirds of it was ours, and one third of it belonged to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it was really a question of the refusing to accept the settlement at the end of the Cold War, refusing to accept the breakup of not only the Soviet Union but the Russian Empire, and that unsettled question was, and I, as I wrote in the book, that Ukraine was likely to be. The issue that blew up between Russia and the West, um, that it took this form as something that one, you know, might not have expected. Uh, but, um, 
you know, this is what sort of boiled up in Putin's mind during his two years of COVID isolation. But it is, as you say, uh, uh, it was it was long in coming, and it it always been festering in his mind. He'd always been de- denouncing that. Uh, Daniel, one thing that stuck out uh, to me in your book is you mentioned uh, the notion of sanctions and how they can be sort of a wasting asset, I think is the words. I, I believe it was uh, George Schultz you were quoting, the, the yeah. Secretary of State under Reagan, about how, well, yes, you can impose sanctions, um, but they sort of have a, a short shelf life, so to speak. You know, if you try to lock uh, Russia out of getting certain technologies, well, they'll, they'll develop their own, um, that sort of thing. And I wonder if we, when we look at the sanctions, uh, so many sanctions that have been placed on uh, not only Russia, but uh, you know, the, the oligarchs, the, the billionaires of Russia, um, is there any risk of these sanctions, do you think, being a, a wasting asset? I mean, it, well- you know, I was, I was, I always found that comment by George Schultz very wise. Yeah. Because there, you know, there is a tendency uh, for the United States to just say, well, let's just put sanctions yeah. and that will solve the problem. And then, well, Iran is still there. Venezuela is still there. Um, I think here we've never seen sanctions that have two characteristics. One, as massive as they are. And two, it's not just the United States, but the United States and Europe together and some other countries. And so, uh, the impact um, on the Russian economy will be enormous. I mean, Russia really will, you know, the uh, the door to the West is closed and uh, it will really have to look to China. Um, will they wear away? I think that goes to some of the questions, the kind of basic theme in, in your podcast is what happens to markets and, how you know, how turbulent is it? And this is a contributor, a major contributor to the energy crisis or energy disruption we're seeing with all the impacts on the economy and, of course, tying into um, the, the struggle over in inflation. But I think um, this is, I think, at a level that's never been been done before. And uh, it was interesting because at the beginning, I remember talking to people in the, in the U.S. government, they said, we're excluding energy because Europe's too dependent. And so we can't do that. But now the Europeans themselves are saying, we don't want to send 250 billion or 300 billion dollars a year to Russia. And so most of the German countries, led by Germany, actually want to put on uh, sanctions on energy as well. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Before we talk more about the U.S. and China, I want to ask you about what the future of oil and gas exploration looks like when it comes to Russia, because you have this passage and actually a, a really great picture where you show, I think it was a titanium flag that the Russians planted at the North Pole to sort of stake it and, and say, this is ours and this is where we'll be looking for oil in the future. So can you talk about that? Because that, that is like so striking to me. Yeah, it is. It's uh, well, really, there there are two parts to what that titanium flag. It, this Russian uh, mariner went down and planted it at the you know the on the seabed because the Russians want to claim the Arctic, and of course that will looks like it's going to be a new arena of, of competition. And the U.S. has been slow to wake up to it, uh, but uh, you know what do they call it? The high Arctic, uh, but. Uh, and for Russia, offshore oil uh, was the ma- a major new frontier. But I think they're not going to, without Western technology, without the Western companies who have said, you know, they've said so long, we're out of here. I think it's going to be very hard for them to develop uh, the offshore or or f- develop further their Arctic LNG and so forth. So I think they'll be more focused on their traditional areas in Western Siberia, and they probably have the you know the capabilities. To continue to produce, but I think they're going to produce. I think their production will go down, and so Russia will not. It'll be a very important producer, but it won't be an energy superpower, and it won't be able to tap into the global economy, technology, and capabilities and partnerships uh, that it did up till February twenty third. I, I love that idea of just dropping a flag to to claim ownership right. I, I you know i what is it technically is it canada i guess in the, the, that well, part of the North well, Pole? well it's a little titanium flag and <laughs> i mean but the funny thing was i think it was the canadian foreign minister which also has a big interest in the arctic said what is this is this is this isn't the 19th century you don't go around <laughs> planting flags but in a way putin lives in the 19th century yeah yeah fair point you know, Daniel, to bring it back to the the U.S. Uh, energy industry, um, uh, one thing in your book that I I found interesting, and I don't think a lot of people appreciate this, that the notion that, well, yes, um, you know, these shale producers in Texas are producing a tremendous amount of oil, but our refining capacity in this country isn't a perfect match for all that light, sweet Texas crude, that we're actually better set up to refine heavy crude from overseas. So I'm curious, to me, I'm guessing, you know, the capital intensity and the time intensity of, of upgrading that refining capacity must be uh, 
harder even than you know drilling and exploring for oil you know more more capital intensive and more time intensive is is that going to change do you think where you know some more refineries will maybe get retrofitted or come online that will be able to process more of that shale oil and would that be the in the best interest of this country do you think well i think um it depends. I mean, the, you know, the, the basic theme of your show is your podcast is markets, and it's kind of efficient. Mar- this is efficient markets at work. It economically makes more sense to export that oil somewhere else uh, and then import the crude that fits the system. Uh, you can run, you know, ill-fitting crudes uh, through refineries, but it's just a lot less efficient and, and costs are, are higher. Uh, I think I think to some degree we'll see you know that retrofitting that investment go on, but the U.S. made such a huge investment. I think we estimated like a hundred billion dollars to get our refinery system, because we were an importer of oil, to be able to take those uh, heavier crudes and so forth, and so it would take a you know a lot of money to change it. So, uh, but it, you know it was a big political battle to get the crude export ban lifted. It was a relic of the nineteen. 19- 70s that you had this ban it really didn't you know it actually i mean if you think markets are the best way to do it then it didn't it didn't make sense and without lifting that ban we would not be able to produce as much oil as we are doing because given our refining system it just um it, you wouldn't have had the global uh, you needed the global market to to just to justify the continuing investment and, and the growth of production. Right. So do, do you think the American producers, I mean, clearly they they must be reacting to these elevated prices and uh, increasing production to, to some degree. But boy, when you think about it, you know, if I were a, a CEO of, a, of an energy company and, you know, first I lived through the, the crash in prices in like 2015, 2016, and then the actual negative prices during the the covid epidemic i imagine that's got to be causing some reluctance um to to sort of go in with both feet and and yeah boost investment yeah exactly i mean in the last decade we saw this incredible growth where the us was at one point adding 2 million barrels a day it's been a much more uh muted reaction for exactly the reason you say that's one of the big reasons because prices go up just like the title of your show, they go up. But then <laughs> the other side of your, the title of your show is that prices go down. Yeah. And uh, and they've been through those cycles. They've been through two down cycles since 2014. So there's that factor at work. Second factor is investors are saying to them, don't go hog wild. You, you, know, you have to return money to us. This is an investment. This isn't a gift. And so uh, they are... Uh, you know, returning 40, 50% of their cash flow because investors are uh, are, are demanding it. It's like a, a new social contract between the producers and the investors. And the third thing is the same supply chain problems that are bedeviling the rest of our economy are bedeviling them. Not enough pipe, not enough truck drivers, you know, not enough crews to work on things. And so uh, they're competing for workers with other people. So, um, you know, that supply chain is is a big problem. And I just came back from Houston. People were saying a well, you know, a well that might have taken six months to get to production will take nine or 12 months 
to get to production. So production's going up. Uh, maybe at the beginning of the year, people thought it would go up by a million barrels a day, which is a big number. Now, you know, at least some of the producers are saying more like U.S. production will go up by about 600,000 barrels a day. So it is going up, but it's, you know, people are not, shall we say, it, this uh, irrational exuberance is out of fashion in the oil patch. <laughs> that makes sense. And just to give listeners a bit more background information, can you, as you lay out in the book, can you lay out how it is the U.S. became such a big oil and gas producer? Yeah, it's really, it's, it, was a, it was a revolution. You know, we had eight presidents in a row, starting with Richard Nixon and uh, saying, right up through Barack Obama saying, we want to become energy independent. And it seemed a joke. It was never going to happen. Uh, but there was this technology called shale, which really involves sort of um, uh, hydraulic fracturing, as it's called, combined with horizontal drilling. And uh, there was one really obsessed individual. You know, it's so it's so interesting when you you know the role of obsessed individuals in economic change, uh, named George P. Mitchell, who was convinced if you just worked somehow, even though the textbook said it was impossible, you could make it work. And for twenty years, twenty five years, people scoffed, but then it did work. And uh, you know, even his own company people were telling him not to spend money on it. But if he hadn't spent that money, I'm not sure that we would have been where we were. And then, so in the early 2000s, you started to see kind of wildcatters as independence, as they're called, small companies starting to adapt that technology. And then people said, oh, U.S. natural gas supply, instead of going down, is going up. And then they said, well, if it works for gas, maybe it works for oil too, in about 2008, 2009. So this all really happened in, you know, in that period from about 2008 till, you know, up until this that's when it all really began the shale revolution and it just took the u.s from an entirely different position and if you had told people in 2002 that the u.s was going to be the world's largest oil producer larger than russia larger than saudi arabia the world's largest producer of uh natural gas and this year the world's largest exporter of lng they would have said you're living in a fantasy world so i i know no one I know likes to make predictions on prices, Daniel, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the vibe that um, from where you're sitting, um, I, it doesn't sound like we should expect these these elevated prices to show much improvement in, in the near future. Any any well, thoughts on, on what we can expect? So, you know, one of the things I've seen from studying the industry is that about every three years, there's a consensus about what's going to happen. And then something entirely different happens, <laughs> particularly when it particularly when it comes to price. Um, but, you know, I think that before we went into the Ukraine crisis, uh, the Ukraine war, we were already in an energy crisis. And it started last uh, autumn in Europe and Asia with much higher prices. And that's because the su supply demand balance had become very tight because the rebound from COVID had been quite strong. And you simply had had what I started to call preemptive underinvestment, just not, you know, picking up one of the things we we're talking about, not enough investment around the world. Uh, I think that condition still persists. And I think uh, Russian oil is not going to, Russia is not going to be producing as much oil. So I think um, my expectation would be tight markets. And some people, you know, have much higher, you know, higher expectations of price. Uh, and, you know, because we don't, this 
no one thought this war would go on for as long as it has. And, you know, is it maybe going to go on much longer? And is Putin going to use nuclear weapons? You know, just there's so many questions that you don't know the answers to. I'd say the big counter fact out there, and by the way, and if China comes out of its COVID lockdown, then that starts to push demand up. And that's why, you know, you've seen prices, you know, they've been pretty volatile, but on days it goes up, it's because Shanghai is uh, ending its lockdown. Um, uh, but the other side of it is um, the growing, the growing, you know, weight of voices about recession and downturn. And if you do have a downturn, uh, you know, significant recession, energy prices will come down along with, uh, uh, you know, other commodities. But uh, but commodities are tight, and natural gas. You know, this expectation this summer is for uh, higher you know, natural gas prices to remain high. So I, I think the the one factor on the other side is the recession, is the Fed and what the central banks do. Uh, but I think that if you look at supply-demand balance, it does say uh, we're in a period of tight supply. Well, you say in the book that the world has grown to worry about peak demand or how long consumption of oil will continue to grow. So I want to, I want to ask you to <laughs> make that prediction as well. Like how long will it continue to grow? Okay. Well there, um, you know, there were some people during the pan, uh, the lockdown who thought world oil demand had peaked. Uh, uh, my response was you shouldn't make, uh, generalize about the future in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that we've seen, I mean, what came, coming out of the pandemic, we've seen growth. And if we have growth in the developing world and emerging markets, add 2 billion people more, demand will continue to grow. So I think it's very reasonable at this point to expect world oil demand to continue to grow until the early 2030s in that period, and then kind of reach a plateau and maybe start to uh, to, to slope downward. But, um, you know, that's, you know, maybe 10 years away from that. But I think that growth is, is still there. And I think natural gas, uh, actually, consumption uh, grows for a longer period of time. It, and that sloping downward in, in 10 years or so, is that because the electrical vehicle, uh, electric vehicles will finally be sort of ec more economical? Yeah, exactly. That, that EVs will become much more common, although there is still the, now the new question is about what about the minerals and the metals that you need for a highly electrified society? I, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a worry wart by nature, you know, it's, are, are the new geopolitical tensions going to be about, you know, the supplies of nickel and cobalt and, and all the other metals? I think so. Yes. I think you're quite right. I think uh, we'll have a, you know, oil and gas have been wrapped up in geopolitics, uh, you know, from the beginning, I think that the, now these minerals, which people didn't think much about unless they were in the business or near the business or investing in the business, will also be much caught up in geopolitics. We're doing a study now on uh, copper and just, uh, you know, how kind of said, okay, if you have these goals for 2050, how much copper will you need? Uh, and it turns out you'll need a lot more than we have now. And where the mines and, you know, they're in Chile, they're in Peru. Uh, and it takes a much longer time to open, develop and open a new mine than it does to bring on even an offshore uh, oil field. Right. So uh, I think I think that's kind of looming out there and that may affect the cost curve for uh, for wind and solar. But I think uh, so 
that's part of it. But I do think, yeah, as you get more electric cars and as kind of population, world population starts to stabilize, I think those are the factors that would mean that, you know, and more efficient that demand just starts to uh, flatten out demand growth. I have a two-part question for you, which listeners will know. Mike is very well known for having multi, multi, multi-part questions. Uh, so, two, do I need to get a pen two, here? And yes, I'll, possibly. No, no, <laughs> I'll I'm not. I'm not notes, as bad okay. as Mike. Two-part two, two question is amateur hour. Hold on, come on. Give me at least five or six. Okay, pile on. I'm piling on. So, I want to ask you to grade. Uh, how, how what grade you would give all of us in, in terms of the progress we've been making? Uh, when it comes to renewables and the second part is just because we were just talking about uh, international developments and, and how, how that plays a part but in the book you had said that covid could actually lead to more failed states and i want to ask you how that also plays a, a, a role in this right so on uh, renewables you know i spoke before about the shale revolution there's been a solar revolution solar costs have come down 90 percent uh it's interesting wind and solar as modern industry is about a, a half a century old but it was about 10 years ago when they started to really achieve uh scale uh and costs came down so dramatically and so that's been very significant uh so there are, you know most the new capacity that's been put in place for u.s utilities uh, is wind and solar and so i think you know that's been a big success story uh they are intermittent so you need something else like natural gas to, to balance them out or otherwise you have uh, brownouts so uh and i think you know we're now starting to see the development of offshore wind which is on a whole different scale and um you know it's more advanced in europe um but by the way um about 80 percent of the solar panels are made in china and um, there are tariffs on them. And, you know, so that gets back to our kind of geopolitical question about as we move in that direction. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's part one of your question. Part two, uh, I mean, COVID has really, has been pretty devastating for, you know, many for economies in developing countries that don't have the resources like the United States have and don't have a printing press, actually. And so I think it's created a lot of hardships for a lot of states. Right now, Sri Lanka, I mean, there are other factors at work too, is, is just its economy is just broken down. And uh, so I think the recovery from uh, COVID, I mean, there's an economic recovery that has to go along with the, uh, with the, um, with the health recovery. So I, I think, you know, I think the economic scars are going to be there uh, for uh, a longer time. So if we do have, if we do end up seeing more failed states, how much more difficult does it make, you know, to, to mine cobalt or any of these other? Well, well, either failed states or um, states swept up in populism. And uh, we've seen some elections in Latin America that point in that direction. Uh, you know, there there will be more of those. Uh, if you look at the political map of Latin America, it's not people, the people who are in, who are in power are not people who believe in the necessary in the free flow of capital and and investment and so forth. And um, so I think 
and they will want to you know change the terms on which people have made investment and so i think that will i think those political factors will hinder investment and slow down the investment and you know chile has a 35 year old president who wants to change the terms under which companies operate chile is the world's largest producer of copper uh you know and and therefore if the politics change companies are more reluctant to make investment and are more cautious right so i think that's something to watch that it's not don't it's it's you have to pay attention to the politics that are happening above ground right Daniel, you mentioned um, how Germany had shut down their uh, nuclear power plants, um, I guess, under uh, uh, Angela Merkel. I I believe that was after Fukushima when they they sort of got freaked out about the the Fukushima incident. I think that, uh, Mike, I think that's the right word, freaked out. Yeah. (laughs) Rightly so. I can't blame them, I guess, at at the time. But is... um, do you anticipate any change of heart on on nuclear? Yeah, yeah. There's been um, there's even been a change of heart in Germany, where you even had people in the Green Party saying it may have been a mistake to shut down the nuclear. Uh, and uh, you see what you see now is a lot of focus on small nuclear reactors. We just had our our big Week conference in Houston. And I heard three industrialists just kind of almost talking like they expect that by the 2030s. You had President uh, Emmanuel Macron in France who came into power saying, we want to downplay nuclear and do more renewables. He's just now said, elected for a second term, he wants to uh, uh, six new nuclear reactors and maybe another eight. Even Britain has talked about it. So uh, I think that, and in the US, there's something like um, 60 at this point, companies and research groups that are working in nuclear. And I heard the other day that something like $4 billion has gone into kind of venture capital funding for fusion, not fission. So I think that, um, and, and the U.S. government is putting money into, you know, into these new nuclear technologies. So I think there has been a uh, turnaround, not a, an embrace by any means, but a turnaround and a thought that particularly that maybe small nuclear reactors will be economically manageable, by the way, uh, to, uh, to deploy and sense that it needs to be part of our electricity supply. By the way, the, com- the countries that's the biggest international vendor of kind of nuclear power and uranium happens to be a country called uh, Russia. <laughs> what could go wrong there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a reliable supplier. <laughs> Daniel, you you lay out all these characters in the book who helped revolutionize oil and gas exploration in the U.S., so Harold Hamm or Sharif Suki. And I want to ask you who the Harold Hams are of the renewable space today. Well, uh, they are today. Well, obviously, the person who has, you know, this is no secret. The person who has transformed the automobile industry is Elon Musk. And I have that wonderful story in the book about J.B. Straubel, who was this technology, this electricity enthusiast who had lunch with him in 2003 and tried to sell him on the idea of electric airplanes. He says, I'm not interested in an electric car. And Musk says, I might well be interested in that. And um, Musk, a couple of years ago, said it had not been for that lunch in Los Angeles, there might not have been a Tesla. I mean, it's just the contingency of history. 
And look at now all the automobile makers are all saying by 2030 or 2035, they want to go all electric or mostly electric. So I think he stands out there the most in terms of, um, in terms of uh, wind and renewables. I mean, I, I mean, there's a, pioneers i mean i think they're you know people who are playing uh leadership roles but it's i think i think the breakthrough period is is behind us i mean now these are well-established industries your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, Daniel, you're the one who brought up Elon Musk, which I feel like is the perfect segue to our craziest things of the week because mine is is uh, Elon related. But Daniel, what a treat to catch up with you. Uh, Daniel Jurgen is the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Also about a half dozen other books, right? Yeah, there are a few other as well. And, uh, and he's the, vi the quest. vice chair. <laughs> just a few. Uh, and the vice chairman of S&P Global. And it's a, been a real honor to, to get your thoughts on, on energy markets, Daniel. Well, thank you. It's been great to talk to both of you. And thanks for the opportunity. But, but uh, first, we're going to get your thoughts on the crazy things in the markets. We can't let you go without... Uh... Okay. Well, I think the thing that's on my mind is um, kind of this schizophrenic US policy about energy. Uh, on the one hand, wanting more production. On the other hand, uh, kind of beating up on, you know, on, on the industry. 
And, you know, Germany has been able to work out what to do about oil because they've had this dialogue between government and private sector. And, and we don't have that in the United States. And I think um, when you're in a crisis and in a disruption, you ought to do that. So I'm not sure I would put the label crazy on it, but it is um, is something that really stands out that, uh, you know, we need to prepare. It may not happen, but we need to prepare for greater disruption. Right. You know, politicians love to use gasoline prices as a uh, a blunt tool to to beat up their their opponents with. And you know, obviously, Biden's getting a lot of uh, abuse about gas prices. But is there is there any blame to be shouldered on the administration? I mean, I get the the impression that U.S. producers have some spare capacity that they they could be using. They don't need sort of looser regulations to to increase production. Well, I think, I mean, I think they need confidence that if it goes back to what you said earlier, that if they invest, that the rules of the game won't change two years from now when prices come down again. Um, And, you know, they, I mean, uh, that would give them confidence to invest. I mean, one thing, if you're going to invest, you need confidence. Uh, I think we could be, you know, we could be talking to Canada right now and, uh, you know, more, we need more oil. We could get it from there. But it is, I was talking the other day to a, a Democratic congressman, and he kind of sees all of that and everything we said. But, you know, you got to understand, we have an election in seven months. <laughs> and of course, gasoline prices really do hurt a lot of people. And so, uh, it's, but it's very familiar because it's, it's the same language. We recently had a, you know, a hearing on a big dramatic hearing, you know, where they line up all the executives and, you know, accuse them of price gouging everything. And I I found, actually, I looked in my uh, previous book, The Prize, and I found that the first congressional hearing on high gasoline prices was in 1923. <laughs> really? And, and you know what? It was the same script. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's really good. Um, all right. Well, Vladana, I will give you my, I teased it a little bit. I'll give you my crazy thing. Uh, I will not make you play Prices Right this week. Usually, I make Vildana play Prices Right and, and guess the the price of what I'm talking about, uh, Daniel. But he does I'm not good at it, so I don't enjoy the game. Well, well, let's see. Maybe you. I think you can guess this one. I still have to make it a, a game somehow. So okay. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, as you pointed out, uh, brought into the program, Daniel. It's obviously got a little side uh, endeavor going on where he's tr- trying to buy Twitter. And then he sort of pulled the plug on the deal, saying he's not sure how many of these accounts are really actual humans and how many are fake bots. And so the CEO of Twitter put out a very elaborate, long list of tweets uh, explaining their how they deal with bots. Uh, and uh, Elon Musk replied with one emoji. Bill Donna, do you know what the emoji was? I don't, but I'm going to guess it was... The poop emoji. <laughs> it was. was. It? Good guess. Oh, it, oh, it makes sense for Elon. For Elon. So there he yeah, is. It makes sense. The the visionary uh, of electric vehicles, of space exploration, and the richest man in the world uh, replying with a with a poop emoji. So Twitter <laughs> diplomacy. <laughs> That's, yeah. So what do you think? Do you think he wants to buy Twitter? Ah, uh, good question. I don't know. What do you think, Valdana? 
I was struck by a Bloomberg article earlier this week that talked about the debt burden that that comes along with Twitter. I think it's something like $13 billion or, you know, just the annual interest rate payments are something around a billion dollars. Just he must be thinking about that now after he had yeah. rushed into the deal so quickly. And watching the, yeah. the share price reaction in Tesla, I think might have made him change his tune a little bit. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. Well, I have a craziest thing in the electric vehicle market as well. Okay. At least I think it's in the electric vehicle market, but I had never heard of this company before. But my craziest thing, and, and just to to lay the record straight, there were so many crazy things this week. We had <laughs> Walmart and Target. I think each had their largest one-day declines in share price since 1987. And just massive amounts of crazy stuff uh, just happening on a daily basis. But there was this Bloomberg story about some of the wealth that has been coming out from the SPAC market. And so there's a company called Arrival. And maybe Daniel can tell us about it if, if he's familiar with it. But the the founder or the CEO or whoever's behind uh, Arrival, he was worth $11.7 billion a year ago. And he's lost 94% of his wealth. <laughs> Ouch. So there's just been massive losses of wealth, you know, but I think there were a couple of tycoons in China who had lost similar amounts, like yeah. 96 to 99%. The Carvana founders also had lost huge amounts of wealth. And so just it's that that well, market has cratered. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, this happens that, you know, people thought they had all this wealth and, you know, they thought it was sort of like Golden Fort Knox. And it turns out it was paper. Yeah. And so I guess we're going to see a lot of fortunes just uh, pulverized. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's even before we start talking about crypto, where they it's it's, right. it's going off. <laughs> so okay, I have one. I have I have a game I played. I'll, I'll just mention to you, which uh, uh, is there are a lot of Teslas on the street in Washington, and so my hobby is to count how many Teslas I see in a day. <laughs> the number's going up. Is it okay? <laughs> Is it really? Yeah, it's yeah. And, and Elon is a new, uh, a newfound conservative, uh, politically leaning. So I'd be, be curious to see how his yeah. sales do. I don't, I don't picture. I don't know. I picture a lot of Democrats buying those cars. I don't know if he's, he's. Uh, yeah, well, actually, that you're right. I mean, you're right. His, that's a really good point. That his, uh, his market may not be where uh, his, um, yeah, where he is politically currently. Yeah. Where his tweets are. Yeah, yeah, he might uh, might regret some of this, but we'll see. Maybe we'll get him on the show, Vildana, and he can answer all our, <laughs> yeah. our questions. Maybe. For <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> the invitation's out. <laughs> right. But uh, Daniel Jurgen, again, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Vildana and I, we're not exactly uh, book critics, but we both love the new map. Big endorsement for us. Uh, great storytelling, uh, great writing, and just... Um, Really putting it all together, everything going in the uh, around the world now with geo geopolitics and energy. It's um, the tour really joined at the hip, and and you really did a good job of putting it all together. Well, well thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. It means a lot. Thank you. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. 
You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.